pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, absolutely. My name is Marianne Holtman. Holtman is the English pronunciation. In Swedish, it's Marianne Hultman. <laughs> so are you Swedish? I'm actually Swedish-Israeli. Swedish-Israeli. Now that's yeah. a fascinating combination. It happens. Every combination <laughs> happens. But like, So which parent is Israeli? My mother. But she grew up in Alexandria. That's Egypt. That's in Egypt, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, thing. People moved around all over the Middle East up until basically the Ottoman Empire fell, and colonialism arrived to the Middle East pretty late, and the French and the English and I think the Germans were also poking around there, and that made things a little bit more complicated. Uh, but before that, people, families would have like relatives all over. So you could live in Alexandria and have go to Khartoum in the summers uh, or up to the mountains in Lebanon in the winter mm-hmm. uh, or the other way around, depending on if you wanted to, <laughs> it to be warm or cold. And after 1947 or 48, it became when the state of Israel was founded, it all became very complicated. Yes. And we're not here to talk about no? that because I have no position on that. I stay mm. neutral. Mm, mm. Yeah. So anyways, moving forward. So you are, what, what exactly is your current position? Because you are at the... I'm the director of uh, North Norwegian Art Center, and... You translated that for me. That's not the actual name. Isn't it? I thought it has like a Norwegian name. Yeah, no, Norsk Kunstnercenter. There you go. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Norsk Kunstnercenter, we have a gallery... Mm-hmm. in the largest city in Lofoten, Svolvar, where we have an exhibition program and uh, also a sort of museum shop where we sell art and design by artists who are uh, live and work in Lofoten, but also in the whole northern part of Norway. And apart from that, we also have a pro- programs that we run. We're in contact with artists and art centers all over northern Norway. I'll say Norway as a whole country seems to have a very strong interconnected set of like, I'm not sure, centers, associations. I'm not sure exactly what the defin- the right word is, but like, you all seem to work together. Uh, I'm not going to say necessarily well because I haven't really interacted personally, but but that you you seem to actually communicate well with each other, and you seem to work on projects together and things like this. Because coming from the United States, very little like you know like something in Virginia doesn't work with something in the next state. Like they just don't talk to each other. So like you all seem to actually work together in in, in a very positive way. Well, I mean, it's it's really good when it is positive, <laughs> but I think also that it has a lot to do with 
Scandinavia as a social democratic um, and the social democratic concept uh, and also how cultural politics developed in Scandinavia during the 60s um, and which included that artists also organized themselves mm-hmm. in artist unions I love the idea of artist unions. Ugh. And they did a lot of very important work, especially maybe in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Norway, the artists' unions or associations are still very strong political entities. Uh, so, for instance, in Norway, you have the National Artists, artists Association. Mm-hmm. And they also have more regional or, uh, yeah, and regional artist associations. And because the northern parts of the countries are huge, uh, I think it's difficult to even imagine how how large these areas are. Uh, It also, sometimes it's good, sometimes maybe not so good, but it also divides the artists. So you have, so you talk a lot about northern Norway, or the northern parts of Norway, mm-hmm. but we're, we're still in Norway. We don't talk so much about southern Norway, the southern parts of Norway, which is interesting. And also because I'm Swedish, as an outsider, I can sort of see these things. I, can't, I don't necessarily see them in Sweden, but it's easier for me to spot them here. And and um, it's interesting, interesting to think about it. Why is it like that? Is it good? Should we challenge it? I had no idea there was a northern versus southern Norway. Like to me, it's just, you know, from a, from an outsider's perspective, it's just Norway. Mm. But it seems like for regionally, there is this very strong divide between the north and the south, which is, you know, for me as an American, so you know, the north and the south is a, a strong divide that we have there along racial Absolutely. and mm. racial tolerance mm. lines. Mm. I hope that's not what it is here. Here, I think it has a lot to do with uh, uh, with natural resources, basically, and and uh, how our relationship to the landscape changed with modernity and it's it's i mean it's a parallel history with uh, the idea of the the, na- the nation state mm-hmm. and democracy uh, and oil and industrialism hmm? yeah and oil yeah but also before oil you had the f- the fish industry up here is very important and for a long time it wasn't necessarily the people who um, it wasn't the fishermen mm. who became rich. Still it were not. the merchants yeah. and they were living in the south. <laughs> oh, okay. And then you have also other natural resources here. I mean, oil only came in the 70s. So there is a very long history where we... So the south sort of harvests the resources of the, the resources north. of the north okay uh, and now we're going into a sort of new cycle where you think about um, the environment and you have to think 
green around that whole thing, but it's basically the same story. put air quotes for story. the green, hmm? just to be clear. Hmm? It, people can't see that you did air quotes. So oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Sure to, yeah, to, yeah. To tell people exactly. you did yeah. air quotes for green. <laughs> yeah, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's uh, an interesting change. You know, I mean, we should, you know, for all practical purposes, we should have been thinking that mm. way all along, but of course conglomerates and governments and powerful people decided not to think like that but so on so moving forward though exactly um so you the center that you work for also runs a international arts festival called Lioff or mm. Lofoten International Art Festival is that correct exactly okay mm. and it's a biennial mm. and it's happening this year yes it is yeah can I just say something? Absolutely. I'm going to stop you because I just wanted to clear that Nordnorskunstner Center is owned by the artists and designers mm-hmm. or arts and crafts artists <laughs> in northern Norway. Okay. So that's part of the whole artist association uh, history. And apart from the program that we do here in Lofoten, we also own and produce LIAF. Mm-hmm. And we also have the artist house in Lofoten, which, which is... Which we are currently sitting in. Exactly. Which is uh, a guest house for artists. I, I personally, like, outside of this recording, I also want to know more about that. But, mm. so, but it, it's an artist residency program, basically. Yeah, but but we don't. You can't apply for a residency, and then because you have to pay. Okay. To so to yeah, stay so, here. so it is more but of a guest it's very, house. Very exactly. So I think it, a guest house is actually more accurate. So it's basically like a place you can stay in a beautiful location that has a studio available for you. That yeah, that has three studios. Three? I've seen yeah. two. Where's the third? In the cellar. Okay, I saw it's it through like a window, but yeah, I didn't actually yeah, go down yeah. there. Okay. And there's actually also a dark room. I'm a photographer. Why has nobody showed me this? I can show you afterwards. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, but let's. I want to take a little bit of a step back, though. Mm. So, how what what did you do in a career that sort of led you to, or, or even practical purposes, like how did you even get into the industry? You know, so like childhood education but then like how did you come to this position so i was always fascinated by images basically and when i was a kid we had a lot of photography books at home and uh, for me it was a way to use or activate my imagination was to just sit and look at all the photographs and What's the one? What's the one book that you you remember distinctly from childhood? Somebody asked me that recently, and I was just like, oh, I have no idea. I don't know. It was more like journalist photographies, mm-hmm. black and white from the thirties. You know, old Life magazines. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know. It. Yeah. More the National Geographic, actually. Absolutely. Uh, my dad had an entire collection from like the 1960s all the way up. He had like an entire exactly. bookshelf of National Geographic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Absolutely. I just loved it. So we had a few books with photographies of that kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
for me it opened up it opened up the world i mean seeing an an amazing portrait of louis armstrong or i don't know why i'm thinking just about but you know there are some really famous photographs and it made me so curious about the world yeah we had eve arnold who was one of the photographers my parents mm-hmm. had on the coffee mm-hmm. table and mm-hmm. we also had a uh, mary ellen mark mm-hmm. who's also one of the ones we i grew up with on my coffee table so yeah 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 i don't remember the the names of the photographers but uh it's my profession i kind of have to remember exactly. the names. Yeah. yeah well i'm an art historian so I should. Wait, so wait, you're an art historian. I'm an artist. Yeah, I studied art history. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't know that yet. Mm, so, you know, exactly. No, new so things. this fascination with images sort of led me to uh, want to study art history, but to also understand the world that I was born into through culture and images. I was also fascinated by literature, theater, basically trying to describe the world around us. Just for clarification, where was this? Where were you raised? Because I don't know if it was Sweden, if it was... <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in, in outside of Tel Aviv for a few years, and then we moved to Sweden. And I grew up in Gothenburg but also in Stockholm. So, uh, so moving on then. Yeah. <laughs> so then I, I, I thought that I... So the first thing I studied at university was, was actually the history of theatre, which fascinated me. And I did that because I was contemplating becoming an actor or actress. I'm so bad with that differentiation. Somebody, somebody the other night I was out at a restaurant mm. and I said, waiter... It, for, but it was a lady and they got all offended oh. and I was like I, I didn't mean it in any offensive yeah, way yeah, like yeah. just waiter is a word but anyways go on actor yeah. actress yes yeah I had like this idea that it might be interesting and after studying art the history of theater I realized that it's a very very difficult job and uh, you have to to use your body and your emotional life as an instrument in that way. For me, I could sense that it could become dangerous. I could see that. I mean, not personally about you, but I mean, in general, I could yeah, see it being exactly. dangerous. Yes. Mm-hmm. To, to become so good at manipulating emotions in oneself and maybe using that on other people i mean it it i i realized and i also realized okay i don't want to become an actress if i am not one of the best and i wasn't sure that i could become one of the best so i sort of dropped it uh, but i did apply for uh, theater program once twice so I would know that at least I tried and that I wouldn't regret it you know when I was around the age I am now and like oh I should have done that why didn't I pursue that <laughs> we all try not to have regrets yeah well I mean that's how you usually well I was thinking like that anyway when I was younger 
Oh yeah, no, I've done crazy shit in my life. Like I, yeah, I have very few regrets about things I didn't do. I have many regrets about things I did do. <laughs> but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> so how did this then, so as a, so you graduated with art history. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, And then what did you do after that, that sort of has then sort of led you down the path to here? Well, so um, I wrote a thesis about Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, she was an Italian painter who lived uh, during the early Baroque era. She is uh, exceptionally good painter. And after I finished that thesis, um, I became much more interested in contemporary art because it puzzled me. Uh, I remember trying to understand what Marcel Duchamp tried to do with the large glass. And I was like, I, I really, I, I don't understand it. How was he thinking? What, what did he want to achieve? It was a complete mystery to me. And it fascinated me that I didn't understand it. So I wanted to study it more. How do you feel about it now? I still love it. I, I mean, it's it's still a complete enigma. I was going to say, but is it still a mystery? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Good. So it but, hasn't but lost that, its mystery. But, but the thing, what I understood much later is that that was also the purpose. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So then I wrote another thesis about uh, Robert Rauschenberg's Mud Muse, which is uh, an amazing piece that he made in 19... 19- between 1970, I think, and 1972, 73. And that's part of the collections of Moderna Museet in Stockholm. And um, the first time I saw it, I fell in love with it because I didn't understand what it was. <laughs> I feel the same way about Robert Rauschenberg's work. Like, I love looking at it, but mm. I cannot figure out what he, like, why he thought those disparate ideas fit together like I, I'm always like looking at him going like okay what was he thinking that he thought these images fit together I can never figure it out <laughs> but, but I still enjoy looking at him he's amazing he's one of my absolute favorite mm-hmm. artists I came this close to meeting him literally I walked down the hall he was in my printmaking studio in when I was at the Corcoran in Washington DC and he, I just walked by and I was like was that Robert Rauschenberg? And they were like, yeah, he's friends with Skip. And I was like, oh, Skip was our printmaking teacher. And they were just hanging out, running a little print edition. And I was just, I didn't go back and say hi. I should have. Mm. But anyways, that's my brush with fame there. <laughs> uh, yes, I wrote, anyway, I wrote the thesis. And when I was... Um, Writing it, I understood that Robert Rauschenberg, or I knew that before, he had a very strong connection to Sweden. He did a lot of, uh, or several collaborations and exhibitions with Moderna Museet when he was still quite a young artist. And uh, he also worked a lot with a Swedish engineer whose name was Billy Kluver, and whom Billy Kluver moved to New Jersey in the end of the 50s, I think it was. And he worked as with um, laser for 
Bell in New Jersey. And uh, he was fascinated by film, experimental film, but also with contemporary art. And he got to know all the New York artists, uh, the young, like Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns and, and Andy Warhol and that whole bunch of, of very active artists during the 60s. And he started to help them out with solving technological problems for them because he was an engineer. So, for instance, he helped Andy Warhol to create silver clouds, just as an, yep. an example. Uh-huh. And, and they also did a huge, or one of the, or the first large-scale performance festival called Nine Evenings Theatre and Engineering, that was uh, done in New York, I think, in 1962, I think it was. I'm just going to believe you're right on all your dates. Go on. <laughs> and after the, that, um, Billy Kluver, Bob Rauschenberg, Bob Whitman, and Fred Waldor, that was another engineer colleague at Bell, they uh, founded Experiments in Art and Technology, just to be clear, when you're saying at Bell, you mean Bell Technology. Exactly. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm just making yeah, sure yeah, I'm yeah, understanding yeah, it correctly. Exactly. Uh, but then, then it was Bell Telephone. Right. <laughs> Before they broke it up and you know, all that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Back in the good old days. Back when, when I was a kid, you still had to rent your telephone to have in your home from Bell. Oh, wow. So you, you didn't actually own a telephone. You rented the telephone. But I wonder if it was that, that in Sweden too. But the thing is that, you know, you always had the phone there. So we just, as kids, you didn't really understand that it was the, the telephone, the royal telephone company that owned the phone. That's right. Yeah, I didn't understand it. One day what happened was uh, somebody in our house broke our mm. phone mm. and my parents then uh, sat down and like explained to me and my brother like we don't own this phone we were renting this phone and we're like what like it's it's a phone <laughs> who, who knew you rented these things at a time but anyways yeah yeah so anyway to make a very long story um even longer <laughs> uh because I have read about Billy Clover and I knew that he was probably around still. Uh, I looked up what I thought was his address and I sent him the thesis about Mad Muse because he was, that was during the, the era where art and technology was sort of very much in the loop. And uh, a couple of weeks later, the phone rang and he was on the other end. And uh, and then he asked if I wanted to come to New Jersey and work as an assistant for him and his wife, Julie Martin. And so uh, I came and then I traveled there and worked for them for six months. Oh, I was waiting for you to say like 10 years. No, 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 for six months. And okay. then I also started to do research about for my PhD because I had started 
or started pursuing my PhD, I still haven't finished. Uh, As most people haven't, yes, it's fine. I I wanted to write about the early history of Moderna Museet. So while I was in New York, I also conducted interviews with many of the artists and, and filmmakers that had come to Stockholm during the 60s and 70s. And around that time was also in 1997, this was, Bob Rauschenberg had one of his largest retrospectives at the Guggenheim. So um, I met him several times and I also did an interview with him. Very envious, (laughs) but all right. And I I met his turtle, Rocky, (laughs) at Lafayette Street. And and, uh, it was wonderful. He was uh, an extraordinary person and an extremely talented artist. Oh, yeah. 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 So that was how I sort of fell into the contemporary art world in a way. And uh, I wanted to stay on. All right. Your story is fascinating, but now I'm wondering, keep wondering, like, and how did you end up here? Exactly. Well, it's not. It's <laughs> I, not... I don't mean that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I said end up like like it was yeah. like a, a downfall. I didn't. No, mean no. That, like, yeah, yeah. How, how yeah. did that lead to you <laughs> to being here? Yeah. So I realized after I came back from New York, I realized that I really wanted to work in a museum or with living artists. I didn't want to sit with other art historians and write about dead things. I wanted to be on the floor. And to start with, I thought that I needed to have a PhD to be able to enter the museum world. So you do? Why is that a question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and after a while, so I started to work as a tour guide or a docent at museums. And that was my second university, really. So I learned so much by explaining artistic work by artists that I didn't even know that I was fascinated by. (laughs) And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful school that I loved. I loved to uh, talk to the public about art. The public, when it comes to that kind of a situation, they come up with the most fascinating interpretations and or questions Mm. that like you had never even thought to ask about something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, So. (laughs) But they uh, do that all the time about everything. (laughs) Yes. But especially when they're looking at what they think is supposed to be something important. Yeah. That they don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So I did that for a while. And then there was a curatorial program that had just started in at the university in Stockholm. And I thought that maybe that would be instead of writing a PhD, maybe I can apply for that program and see if they accept me. And then I can do that instead of having a PhD <laughs> and enter the art seen from a different uh, angle. Uh, So I applied for it and I was accepted. And so I studied there for two years and it was a very hands-on program. 
which was fantastic. And it was also then, it was all placed in an art school at the arts, art college in, uh, in Stockholm, Konstfack. So we also got to know a lot of artists or art students. And after that, I applied for a curatorial position at the museum in Sweden and what, I got it. What time frame are we talking about at now this Now we're point? in 2000. So I finished the curatorial program in 2002. Okay. And then I started to work at Norrköping Konstmuseum, Norrköping Museum of Art. Norrköping is one and a half hours south of Stockholm on the east coast of Sweden. I'm an American. I have poor geography skills. I just, okay. It's not far from Stockholm. Got it. Mm. All right. So I worked there for five years. It's a wonderful museum. They have amazing collections of Swedish, mainly Swedish uh, art, art, but also the, the, they have a, an amazing print collection that is international. And... In 2005, I curated an exhibition with Norwegian contemporary artists, which made me go to Oslo a couple of times. And I also had a very good friend who lived there. And this job opportunity came up and I applied for it and I got it. So I moved to Oslo in 2007. And lived there for 15 years I thought I would stay there for like max four or five years and then I would go back to Sweden uh, but uh, I stayed for 15 years and it was uh, great Norway was I felt at least that, that there was much more institutional and artistic freedom in Norway Especially institutional freedom. Versus? In Sweden. Interesting. So I was able to do things here that I most probably wouldn't be able to do in Sweden back then. Help me out. I'm a foreigner to both of those countries. When you say uh, like more or less freedoms to, I'm assuming you mean like exhibit particular subject matters or things like mm, this mm. what's the difference between them at that point of time okay at that point we're talking 2008 ish mm, like starting mm, around mm. there there was a different kind of curiosity going on in oslo so the art scene was changing expanding there were more artists from abroad that came to Oslo that studied at the art academy than in Sweden. So you're saying Sweden was staying as was before, whereas Oslo was progressing or evolving yeah, at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Sweden also, of course, had that period, but that had happened like in more in the 90s, maybe. Hmm. When it was sort of like expanding and... and 
blooming. It is fascinating how that sort of changes over time. You know, it's almost like you could watch a wave go across the the, the continent of mm. like what cities and countries sort of go up and mm. down. Mm. And I think mm. it's because like I can think of places even in the United States with the like Chicago was really great at a certain time, and then Boston, and then New York, and then L.A. Mm. And you know, so and it has a, you know, in, like I went to school in San Francisco, so there was a, the San Francisco like. Bay Area figurative or whatever kind of thing, different waves that go around. It's a, it's a, it's interesting how that progresses around the world. Mm. Yeah. So for me, it was an advantage to work here, and also in Sweden, it was more difficult to. Um, it was more difficult from the perspective of job opportunities because if you got a position as a curator in an institution you don't move that's right and then you maybe you establish a family you root uh, which makes it more difficult and then your children take over your job when you die (laughs) (laughs) yeah and uh, and in Norway it's more open okay and I think it still is like that that's great I, I mean you know I'm a f- outsider to all this so it's sort of fascinating to hear even the more subtle nuances because like we would as outsider or as, as an American we would sort of look and think Scandinavia is mostly the same like you know as a general whole but it seems like there are these very specific differences you know I've been to Iceland now and they have very specific different issues basically than Norway does and it seems now Norway from Sweden and I'm sure Finland Absolutely. and so on down yeah this, uh, I would not have imagined it uh, before coming here. But still, also, we have a lot of common history, which that's I find the Nordic countries fascinating. And for me, it's most easy to easiest to relate to Scandinavia, but also to Finland. I mean, the, the, our histories go in and out of each other and, and are so interconnected. And from a cultural perspective, if you look at the arts, it's even more fascinating. So leading you to then what, so you got then, you're new to this role, just so the listeners are clear to this. Exactly. Yeah. I've been here for a month. (laughs) For one month. But I get the first question would be like, you know, as a, as a sort of a suburban child of the city and stuff, like what would sort of encourage you or push you to choose to take a role from Oslo to a more rural setting such as Lofoten? Mm. Lof- Am mm. I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, Lofoten. Okay, Lofoten. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, what, why would that be something that, did you choose it? Was there some sort of life change that said, I need to slow my life down or, or I want to be more involved in this particular role? Like, why did you make that transition? Oh, I mean, after 15 years in Oslo, it was really time to, to do something else. But I've never been particularly scared of shifting positions from being in a larger city and and moving out to the countryside. Uh, When I was working, for instance, in Sweden at the museum there in Norrköping, I lived in the countryside. But it was a two-hour drive to Stockholm, so... 
And up here in the north, is a, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a two-hour flight to exactly, Oslo. Exactly, <laughs> to Oslo. And that's just Oslo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but now I'm also a little bit more experienced. I'm older. And it is really nice to, to be able to try out a more... I'm not sure if it's more quiet, but at least you're more connected to uh, the changing seasons... For me, it's absolutely fascinating to be in such a rich part of the country. And and for me, it's all new. So I'm like a little kid. I'm so excited about everything. I want to learn the whole history of Lofotan in two days. <laughs> it will take and I want to travel everywhere at the same time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, people think that Lofoten, I'm so pronouncing that wrong, I know, but people think that that's like one cove or one fjord, but it's actually a whole district. It's like, basically, it's a whole island chain, if I understand it correctly. And, and so there, it, it's not like, so a, a lot of people think it's just like the one picture they see, that one photo, you know, sunset or with the aurora borealis or whatever. But like, it's not that. It's it's an actual whole row of places with many towns, villages and cities all sort of strung along this sort of, I guess, archipelago almost really. It is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And with very shifting landscapes also stunning landscapes like i mean i'm sitting here like while we're talking i'm sitting here staring out the window just because it's so beautiful outside it's like it's gorgeous it is it is and also i mean i grew up i grew up in also partly in gothenburg and one of the things that i've missed since i moved from there is the smell of the salty sea I like the smell of the salty sea. I'm not a huge fan of the smell of the cod. Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't been here when they just... The cod is still fresh. Uh, that must be quite Strong. intense. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. when I came in the end of April, it was still quite smelly. But I, I don't mind it. But it's also, maybe I will mind it in a couple of years. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know. But I find it absolutely fascinating. And that people have been doing that for a thousand years. Yeah, sorry, just for the still, listeners yeah, though. Yeah, yeah hold on. Please explain. Background, mm, yeah. Mm. The, cod, the cod fishing industry is one of the major exports of this region. And they... They do it in the same old way, the old tradition of literally just hanging cod on these more or less like wooden triangles. Pyramid, Pyramid racks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then just in the open air uh, all over town. And so therefore, when given the shift in the wind or whatever, like certain areas of town can smell very strong of cod. <laughs> And uh, I'm not even, cod. Yeah, and I'm not even here at the high season with the height of the smell, and it's quite strong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't smell like rotten fish. It has a different smell. No, but, I mean but, it smells but it's like distinct. cod. It's distinct. Oh, it's very distinct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I have I had traveled for in my profession to the northern parts of the countries. So you've experienced before. that before. 
yeah but i mean i haven't lived here but but i've i've been here i have colleagues your here. clothes haven't smelled like exactly. it yet <laughs> and uh and last year i also traveled for a week with a colleague in finnmark which is the the most northern parts of norway boarding to finland and russia and to the barents sea uh, and it's basically a sort of a flatland uh, up there and that's where you have all the reindeer and it's sand it's it's like a desert it's sand but you have all those birch trees they're very tiny <laughs> because it's above the the tree line uh, and it's it's yeah I, and I didn't know that you're blowing my mind yeah I had no yeah. idea but okay and there you have a very rich Sami culture and tradition and way of life and uh, different challenges and and conflicts and it's absolutely fascinating and I so fell in love with that I mean I just I was like I need to know more I want to have more <laughs> for the listeners again little backstory on that Sami is the uh, sort of indigenous. name of indigenous people of this I should say this region because it's not just Norway so it's the northern it's Russia Arctic Finland region. Sweden and Norway right mm. and Iceland I don't know if they have Sami people in Iceland they do yeah here we go I was just yeah. there yeah so yeah it's a it's a you know, it's the indigenous people. So like there's that difference in subtle cultural differences as well. So just, you know, keeping everybody up with the vernacular that you're throwing out, that's all. Yeah. And it's a whole different way of, of also, you think more east-west here than further down the country where it's much more about the north and the south. Right. And shifting that perspective is also interesting to do so what you can say is basically to close up this very long answer <laughs> is that uh, i'm a very curious person and my curiosity drives me to new locations and and i'm fortunate enough to be able to to move around it is in many ways it's a great thing i've moved a lot in my lifetime and so like yeah i get it and it, it's fabulous in many ways it's unfortunate in other ways but like you know you make your life choices and you, you just decide that that's what they are so yeah but now let's get to lee off because mm -hmm. that's really the underlying part of this entire thing so lee off is an international arts festival that is coordinated by your center and is run sort of in this region because it doesn't even it's a, it's a biennial so it's once every two years a, a covid negate let's just cancel that out that out. so every two years <laughs> and it uh and it's coming up and so like this these set of podcast episodes is going to be a sort of a build-up of like what to expect and all this kind of stuff so you came into this role a little bit sort of halfway through the preparations 
So what are, so give us a little background on what the, the festival is as far as your knowledge goes. Well, LIAF has been um, running for 30 years and is, well, I think, still the largest international art festival in this part of the world. This part being Scandinavia. The, the, the northern, northern hemisphere. Part. I was going to say, because like, I mean, <laughs> Basel and Venice is obviously Yeah, bigger. above the pole circle. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> you <could there's>, also <laughs> say? You, you know, all the other artistic biennials <laughs> above the polar circle. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine there are many of those. No, no. no. Yeah, so and, you definitely uh, have that truth. Yeah, yes. and I think from the start... It started as a local art festival, but quite soon it developed into uh, having an international perspective, but also having an alternative perspective, but not by not being rooted to, to one space. So it takes place all over Lofoten, which means that one biennial can be uh, focused like this year, to Kabelvåg, which is a community not far away from where we're sitting. And another biennial could take part in a different community, a different part of Lofoten. And the biennial also uses industrial buildings that have been emptied out, or this time round we are going to have a large part of the exhibition in a school that what used to be a school so it's an old school building that is empty so we go in and, and will be demolished after this is will all done. be demolished after yeah 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 which is so exciting i love doing art projects in buildings that will be demolished because you can do anything yeah exactly love it uh, exactly and it, but it also has to do, I think it's also linked to the fact that the, the, the industry changed in, in Lofoten. So many buildings weren't needed in the same way as before. So the biennial before this one that was in 2019 was in the old building of the local newspaper, Wait, for they, instance. They don't have a newspaper? They anymore? have a local newspaper, okay, but they, just... they didn't need that big building okay. because, you know, in the old days, you even printed the paper in the same building. Sure. So it was a whole, you needed so much more space. And today everything is digital. And and they don't have full-time reporters anymore. Exactly. And full-time so the whole industry changed the media industry for instance so so then we could use that building okay and um, yeah so LIAF has taken place all over Lofoten all right so as an underlying sort of uh, mission for LIAF what what is its uh, sort of role desire like what is it trying to uh, express or achieve well apart uh, for the fact to be able to activate 
empty or abandoned spaces is also to activate areas where people maybe don't tend to go otherwise and also to invite artists to work in this very unique environment and uh, learn more about Lofoten but also engage in a global I guess or Western, no, a global, I think you can say, dialogue with the rest of the art scene by doing that with a local perspective. So instead of trying to be the Venice of the North. <laughs> Which could be a great tagline. Yeah, exactly. We, we are Lofoten and we do it out of our own uh, curiosities and necessities and needs and and uh, and in that way we become unique in the same way that the Venice Biennale is unique. <laughs> well, and and some festivals like well, I mean, like we could take Venice Biennale as a good example. Generally, it's pre-prepared artwork that simply is exhibited there. Whereas here, there seems to be also be the inclusion of artists actually coming here and producing works here mm, so it's site for, specific well it's not even well not even site specific but even like experience specific so like they come and reside here they'll come to the guest house or they will come a month or so early and they will physically utilize the the opportunities resources and whatever they're here to then create their works as well so like that's a little different because like in my mind, and maybe I'm just being naive in this, but like oftentimes festivals are, and I did air quotes for that festivals, just to be clear, that festivals are like, uh, they curate the artworks that are pre-existing by an artist or an artist, and they, they then make something specific for it, but don't necessarily ever even go to the location or incorporate the location into it. So I feel like there's a, a slight uniqueness to this festival in that a number of the artists actually do come here and produce works of, by, about, here. Am I wrong? I, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, I I think it is a little bit more complex than that, and it depends also Wait, it's on what. More, I I thought I what think I it's explained more was depending very on, complex. On, on the venue of the Biennale, the purpose of the Biennale, and uh, and today, I mean, to, today there is a complete inflation. I mean, every every city wants to have a Biennale, not really realizing what it entails and the responsibility of running such a show uh, and you all have 30 years of experience yeah yeah which is uh, great but what is also i think puts us in a unique position is that there are a lot of people who are very interested in coming here <laughs> uh, and that's not necessarily the case everywhere and we need to work with that in a responsible way because we have also seen what I find is very interesting to try to understand more about is how is the tourist industry changing Lofoten and how do we need to think about tourism 
in the coming years. Well, it, I mean, as I walked around town, it, I felt like pretty much the two industries were tourism and fishing, mm-hmm. because I either saw fish hanging on a tri- on a, a pyramid, or uh, a boat tour, or a hiking tour, or some sort of sort of you know adventure tourism kind of things. That seemed to be the two primary things I saw. Now, there may be things I didn't see, but those were the ones that I, that I think seemed to be the most prominent. So, like. Is that a, a, a good thing or a bad thing, that sort of incorporation of tourism, in your opinion? I, I don't know too much too, say, too much about it. And with but only a, mo- a month's experience. Exactly. But what I have understood is that the tourism has basically exploded for the last maybe 20 years here. And I, it's perfectly understandable. Uh, it's stunning here. It's stunning. And 20 years ago, it was much more complicated and uh, expensive to travel. It's still not cheap. It's to not be, cheap. To be clear. And it won't get cheaper uh, in this world situation that we're in. With... Until we get electric airplanes, then it'll get cheaper. Well, I'm not sure. But, yeah, no, but, they're probably going to be expensive too. <laughs> Airlines will make those expensive as well, I know, but at least uh, you'll feel better about it. electricity is not free. I mean, it also costs. Uh, All right, solar-powered anyway. electric <laughs> airplanes. Exactly. Or if we can just teleport ourselves, that would be the... <laughs> I am a fan of Star Trek, so like I will go with that. I, I look forward to that. But it might be very chaotic for the first 30 years because we would teleport ourselves all over the place. <laughs> it would be a very interesting life. Like just like You could just be like, I want to go to Paris for dinner, and you could just teleport there. Like yeah, That's craziness. Yeah. But then still sleep in your own bed. I well, or maybe you want to sleep in a bed in Japan. Like, I mean, maybe you could have houses every. You could literally live anywhere, yeah. and then teleport to work, and then teleport somewhere else for lunch. I mean, by by teleport, that's yeah, oh, the dream. Yeah, but I think that that is anyway. I mean, it's something that I'm um, looking forward to understand the complexity of it better uh, and and also how dependent we become on tourism and is that good i mean what has it done again if we go to venice what has it done with venice ruined it in my my humble opinion but yeah you pay a price and the question is are we prepared to pay that price is it worth it or can we think of it in a different way is it really that much like i mean to me the problem with venice is over tourism like so is it is it over tourism here or is it just tourism i think it can very quickly become too much Uh, and it's already you can see the traces that all of the people live uh live in nature and and you can see that in in new paths uh disturbed trash nature life Yeah. yeah And uh, I think we we need to be careful if it's possible. And then you have a lot of investors uh, coming up here. And of course, they want to make money, make money. Yeah. And uh, there is money to make. <laughs> but on the other hand, you have this part of the world where you've had people 
travel here or end up here because they of a storm <laughs> there there have been people from all over the world in this area forever basically uh, and that is also fascinating because it's not as isolated as you might think <laughs> i totally think it's isolated but okay <laughs> no I, no it's not i think it's quite the opposite and and what is so interesting is what happens when people from different parts of the world meet if it's up here oh don't get me wrong i would gladly in a moment buy a cottage up here to come and holiday here but i don't think i could live here so like so no you know, no coming here would be magnificent but living here all year round nothing personal to the people that do it but i think i would go a little crazy yeah but i think that's good because we can't have too many people living here all year round. And you don't want you don't want me here anyways, it's fine. <laughs> I understand. It's okay. But I think what I'm trying to um, say is that the exchange, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world, there will always be exchange between peoples. Uh, people who who end up in a place because of different reasons. They might have moved because of work they might have fled uh, because of, of political war yeah. or or political issues people move around and we have always done that and we will continue to do that uh, but we just need to be more careful about how we do that because now we are also becoming much more inclusive we understand that it's not it does it's not just about us it's everything living the animals need to be able to live their animal life except the cod which we want to fish and eat yeah but there is still quite a lot of hopefully cod around and uh, i wonder my the first thing when i saw that was overfished the fear of overfishing i was sort of like well that's a lot of fish <laughs> yeah yeah it is a lot of fish definitely all right. Any last thing you'd like to sort of touch on that we didn't maybe touch on about specifically about Leof? Well, no, I think uh, you will probably talk with uh, my colleagues and artists that know so much more and can fill you in with much more accurate, interesting stories about Leaf because as you said I've been here for a month and it's it's Leaf is opening on September 3rd so it's my birthday <gasps> wow <laughs> so it's base it's it's literally around the corner all right thank you very much thank you Matthew thank you and enjoy your stay here in Lofoten oh, it's been fabulous so far but the weather's going to turn tomorrow <laughs> but that's also fascinating. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. 
They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.